0: When I uh, when I say to you the name George, what do you say? Bush? What else? Washington? What else? All right, I heard I heard some out there, right? When I say George, each of you have different reactions to that name, don't you? Some of you who are politically minded, you might think of George Bush, George Washington. How about King George of England? Sports fans? You might think of George Foreman. Those of you who love food might also think of George Foreman. But not for his boxing. For the George Foreman lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine. How many of you own one? Excellent. Those of you who are cartoon fans, you might like Curious George. You might think of George Jetson. Or, I heard it from Glenn, say it again, say it Glenn, George, George, George of the jungle. Movie fans, you might think of George Lucas or George Burns, and ladies, I know who you're thinking of, George Clooney. The point is, when I say George, you say, okay, which George? Which George are you talking about? The same is true in Daniel 11. In our portion of Daniel today, we are at the second to last message in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel today, as we come to the end of chapter 11, you will find the words, King of the South and King of the North. And you'll see this phrase, King of the South, King of the North. You'll see it some 20 times in the 11th chapter of Daniel. And the question naturally arises, which king of the south? Which king of the north? You see, Daniel does not use these phrases to refer to one singular king of the south. Or one singular king of the north. Instead, chapter 11 of Daniel is filled with a description of a great many kings of the south. A great many kings of the north. I've listed some of them for you on your outline there. The kings of world history, as recorded in Daniel 11. In verse 1, you had Darius the Mede. Verse 2, you had the Persian kings, Cambyses, Gamata, Darius I, Xerxes. Then in verse 3, the great Greek leader, Alexander the Great. Verse 4, his four generals. In verse 5, you get to that phrase, king of the south. I put KS there for an abbreviation. Ptolemy the first. And then in verse 6, you have another king of the south. Ptolemy the second. And then a king of the north. Antiochus the second, marked by a KN. In verse 7, there's another king of the south. And another king of the north. In verse 11, there's another king of the south. And another king of the north. In verse 14, there's a new king of the south. Verse 20, a new king of the north. And so it goes on and on and on throughout Daniel chapter 11. Mind you, there are no names for who specifically the king of the south was. Instead, Daniel just designates him as the king of the south or the king of the north. From verse 5 onward, Daniel uses the phrase... King of the South or King of the North nearly 20 different times. But despite the uniformity of that phrase, he uses it often to mean different people. In fact, he uses the phrase King of the South or King of the North to describe over 12 world rulers. In some cases, the identity of the kings changed from verse to verse. The movement from one king to the next from the king of the north to the next, continues throughout the chapter. At times the transition is obvious. At times it is only attuned to a carefully trained eye. When we get to verse 36, where we are today, Bible scholars disagree over whether or not we have again changed kings. Bible scholars are of various disagreement here as we approach verse 36. Some say the king of the north, referred to in verses 36 to 45, is the same king of the north that we looked at in verse 21 to 35. Some say that this king of the north, from verse 21 all the way to 45, is one and the same man, King Antiochus Epiphanes whom we looked at whom we've looked at many times throughout the book of Daniel Some believe that this king remains the same from verse 21 all the way to 45 But if Antiochus Epiphanes is the king of the north described in the last 10 verses of Daniel 11 then this portion of Daniel's prophecy would be a fraud. For even liberal scholars admit that the last ten verses of chapter 11 of Daniel describe events that go far beyond what Antiochus ever accomplished. That is why many Christians believe that a new King of the North is in view, beginning in verse 36. A final King, in fact. You and I know this King as the Antichrist. The idea the idea that the last King of the North in Daniel 11 is none other than the Antichrist is not a new idea. Not a new idea whatsoever. In fact, many early Christians believed this to be so. Including early church father Jerome, Theodore of Cyrus, even the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther believed that the last King of the North mentioned in Daniel chapter 11 was none other than the Antichrist. And scores of Christians today follow in their footsteps. This is a fascinating portion of Scripture. And in fact, it is the most detailed description in the Old Testament of the final man of sin. And so I'd like us to read it together, beginning in verse 36. I'm going to read it one time through all the way, and then we're going to go through it piece by piece Daniel 11.36-45, to the final king of the north. Let's read it together. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the, the god of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any god. For he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place, he shall honor a god of fortresses. And a god which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold, with silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which He shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And He shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from His hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Verse 42, He shall stretch out His hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, over the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at His heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble Him. Therefore he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. All that we read in Daniel 10, 11, and 12. All that we read in those three final chapters of Daniel, is a prophetic conversation between Daniel and a messenger of God. It is a vision, a view of the future from Daniel's perspective. And as you read the description of this messenger with whom Daniel spoke, it's quite possible that it was Jesus Himself. Beginning in verse 36, Jesus tells Daniel of a final king of the north. And the first description... The first description he gives to Daniel is that this king will do according to his own will. Which is to say that selfishness is at the core of his very being. In fact, selfishness is really at the core of every sin. Which is why our Lord taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Not mine. But this final world ruler will exert the will to power like none other before him. So enraptured will he be with his own lust for power that Daniel says he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. The final king of the north, the Antichrist, will be well aware, well aware of the identity of the Lord God. He will know who He is. He will know of Jesus Christ. He will know of the Holy Spirit. And He will intentionally set out to blaspheme them. To curse them. He will publicly denigrate the Lord God of Israel. He will belittle Him and openly malign His name. In response to this man's evil, God will send great wrath upon the earth. And you can read about this wrath in much of the book of Revelation, from Revelation 6 all the way to Revelation 18, you have uh, the, the various judgments or plagues that are going to come upon the earth in response to this man and in response to the people who follow Him. They're known as the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl judgments. They're awful plagues, similar to that of Pharaoh in the Exodus, soars upon men's bodies, the sea turning to blood, darkness upon the earth, famine, drought, earthquake. But what is perhaps the most striking of all, even more striking than these plagues, is what Daniel records of this man's influence. Look at the end of verse 36. It says, And he shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. Read that again. He shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. Which is to say the Antichrist will be a man who will be successful in the midst of world chaos and turmoil. Now generally speaking, when great rulers of the world fail, there's an uprising. Think about it. Whenever there is a brutal dictator in a nation, the people will endure it for a time. But over time, the chaos, the disarray, the craziness in their nation will be too much for them to bear. And in the midst of a brutal dictator, the people will rise up and they will violently overthrow Him. In the case of a democracy, when an elected leader of any democratic nation fails in his or her duty, to bring about peace, to bring about prosperity. The electorate in that democratically elected nation rise up and they vote them out. Rarely, if ever, do leaders of nations prosper when their campaigns of leadership are filled with chaos and turmoil. And yet Daniel Through the messenger of God indicates that this man, the final king of the north, shall prosper until the wrath has been accomplished. Through the wrath, through the plagues, through the chaos, through the turmoil, he will gain even more power, even more influence. He prospers amidst the wrath. And so we get a glimpse of the nature of the people that will come to revere this final world ruler. When the world comes to embrace leaders, when the world comes to embrace leaders who fail them, leaders who fail to usher in peace, justice, prosperity, we can be sure that the world is under great delusion. Sure enough, the Bible indicates that it won't just be the Antichrist who blasphemes God. The world, too, will become infected with the poison of his lips and will join him in an evil chorus of blasphemy. We can read about it in places like Revelation 16.11 on your outline, where it says the world, they, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Paul would speak of this as a great delusion in his letter to the Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he said God will send them great delusion strong delusion that the world should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness and so friends the antichrist the final king of the north will be a man not only of great selfishness not only a man who lays claim to to divinity as it says there in verse 36 but he'll also be a man of incredible influence able to prosper Despite great chaos and turmoil on the earth. The description of this man continues in verse 37. It says, The messenger of God says to Daniel, And he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Here we learn about this man's religion. It says he pays no regard to the God of his fathers. That was certainly not true of Antiochus Epiphanes. Those scholars who assume that, that we're speaking of the same King of the North since verse 21, Antiochus revered the Hellenistic gods of the Greeks. In fact, he required their worship. But this man, he's far different than Antiochus. This man pays no regard to the God of his fathers. The word God here is the generic term for God. Elohim. It could mean the Lord God of Israel. It could also mean another God, lowercase g, of another religion. Some believe verse 37 refers to the God of Israel. And therefore, they believe that the Antichrist will be of Jewish descent. But the phrase, God of His fathers, is too generic to require that meaning. It could equally mean that He is of Islamic descent and that He refuses to regard the God of His fathers, Allah. One thing is clear, though. He is a man who parts ways with his ancestral religion. So whether you believe, whether you've come to learn about the Antichrist that you think he is of Jewish descent and that the God of his fathers refers to the Lord God of Israel, or whether he is of some other descent, physical origin, perhaps Islam or some other religion, what is clear here is not his origin, but rather that he parts from that origin verse 37 continues he shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any god for he shall exalt himself above them all here we come to a very hotly contested phrase among scholars historically some have read this phrase he shall not regard or he shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women Some have read that to mean that at the very least, the Antichrist will be an unmarried celibate man. Or at the very most, he will be a homosexual. But recent Hebrew scholarship has demonstrated, um, and I think uh, the consensus is becoming overwhelming at this point, that the translation, the historic English translation of verse 37, is probably misleading. The word for desire here in Hebrew, hemdat, actually requires a, what's called a subjective meaning, not an objective meaning. And that's just tech, that's some technical terms here, but I want to just break it down for us. In other words, if it was an objective meaning of hemdat, the, the word desire there, it would mean the desire of women. But if it was a subjective meaning, which is what most Hebrew scholars are coming to understand about this verse, then it would mean something a little bit different. It would be written rather, the one desired by women. Which is to say that he, the Antichrist, will not regard the one desired by women. Well, what is the one desired by women? Keep in mind, this small phrase, this small phrase is included amidst a larger context, isn't it? When you read verse 37. And if you actually continue all the way to verse 39, it's speaking about his religion. It's speaking about his spiritual persuasion. And so it would seem really odd in the midst of an entire section on his spirituality for all of a sudden Daniel and the messenger of God to part ways and to speak briefly about his sexual orientation. And so instead, scholars have been looking now a different, at a different angle of verse 37. They're, they're now looking at it as the one desired by women. And they're asking the question, where can we find this in, contemporary, uh, in the contemporary day of Daniel? And perhaps, how would Daniel have understood that phrase? One historical option would be the ancient goddess Tammuz. What is fascinating about the ancient goddess Tammuz is that one of Daniel's contemporaries, Ezekiel, a man who prophesied at exactly the same time as Daniel, Ezekiel the prophet spoke about the the goddess Tammuz. In a vision Ezekiel had with God, the Lord showed Ezekiel many of the awful things that the Israelites were doing. And He said a very unique thing about the goddess Tammuz. Turn back in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 8 beginning in verse 12. I want to read it together with you. Ezekiel just a just before Daniel here. Ezekiel chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. God speaks to Ezekiel, and this is what he says. He's showing him the sins of Israel. And he says in verse 12, "Then he said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, turn again, Ezekiel, and you will see greater abominations than they are doing here. Verse 14, So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz, the goddess Tammuz. Weeping. Crying out for a pagan goddess that was prominent in Daniel's day, how would Daniel have understood verse 37? Probably not that the Antichrist, uh, probably not that the messenger of God was making a cursory comment about the sexual orientation of the final king of the north. That's probably not how Daniel understood it. Instead, he, along with his contemporary Ezekiel, would have understood that the one desired by women in that day and age was none other than the female goddess Tammuz. And what the messenger of God is saying to Daniel is that this final man of sin, this final king of the north, the Antichrist, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, he'll abandon his ancestral religion, nor will he regard the gods that are in and around Daniel's day, the gods of men, the gods of women, like Tammuz. He won't regard any of those gods. Instead, he shall exalt himself above them all, according to verse 37. But make no mistake, the Antichrist will be no atheist. He will very much be a spiritual man And though he will revere himself as a god, he will know and he will worship another god who gives him his power. We read about this god in verse 38. But in their place, that is to say, in the place of the god of his fathers, in the place of Tammuz and other gods of that day, in their place, the king of the north shall honor a god of fortresses. And a God which His fathers did not know, He shall honor with gold, with silver, with precious stones, with pleasant things. Thus He shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which He shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And He shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. God's messenger tells Daniel, the Antichrist will worship and serve a God of fortresses, a God of Maos in Hebrew meaning a God of great strength, a God of strongholds. It is quite clear from the testimony of Scripture that this God, lowercase g, is none other than the great adversary, Lucifer or Satan. The Antichrist will be a Satanist. He will worship Satan. He will offer him sacrifices of gold, of silver, of precious stones, of pleasant things. He will acknowledge Satan as his God. And he will work to advance Satan's name. And in return, in return for his worship, Satan will give the King of the North fantastic world domination. Supernatural power. We read about some of this this trade-off of worship for power at the end of Revelation. Turn to the end of Revelation. Chapter 13 in your Bible. Beginning in verse 2 to verse 7. This is the relationship between Satan, the dragon here described in Revelation 13.2, and the final Antichrist. Beginning in the middle of verse 2. The dragon, chapter 13 of Revelation, middle of verse 2. The dragon gave him, that is the Antichrist, his power, his throne, and his great authority. And I saw one of his heads the Antichrist's heads, as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon, Satan, who gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, the Antichrist was, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme His name, His tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. As one scholar has put it, it will be a spectacular Trade off. World power and godhood for a man, the Antichrist, and world homage, homage, <laughs> and adulation for Lucifer the devil. World power and godhood for a man, and world adulation for Lucifer the devil. Verse 39 suggests that the Antichrist will wage military actions against strong fortresses in the name of Satan. And with each victory, He will divide the land for gain. That is to say, through bribery and payoffs, He will bring together a coalition of puppet kings to rule the world as His henchmen. Earlier parts in Daniel and later in Revelation suggest that He will forge an alliance with ten kings, ten nations, which will especially serve in the seat of power in the final world order. But this coalition, this allegiance of nations, it will take time to form. And in the early days, in the early days of his rise to power, the king of the north will be one of many kings vying for world power. But then one great military victory will catapult him to prominence. Notice verse 20, back in Daniel chapter 11, beginning, excuse me, in verse 40 of chapter 11. It says, "...at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north, the Antichrist, shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. He shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape, Edom, Moab, the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand, against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. I went a bit too far there. Ending with verse 41 there. 40 and 41. In the early stages, in the early stages of his career, Jesus tells Daniel that the Antichrist will not enjoy the adulation of the world. In fact, he'll have to fight for it. Daniel is told that the king of the south shall attack him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. I want to pause here for just a moment and reflect on what might be symbolized here in this portion of Scripture because you don't want to miss this. Here we come again to a a very often repeated phrase in this chapter 11 of Daniel. The phrase is king of the south and king of the north. We've seen these phrases some 20 times. And every time, every time we've seen them, they've referred to a point of origin on a map. History demonstrates that the kings of the south, to whom Daniel refers, were always, and I mean always in chapter 11, in reference to kings that derived from the land of Egypt. Always. Likewise, history demonstrates that the kings of the north in Daniel 11, to whom Daniel refers, were always, and I mean always, derived from parts of the land just north and northeast of the land of Israel. In modern day terms, we would think of the nations of Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, western parts of Iran. And so it begs the question, and I've written that question on your outline here, on the right side of your outline in the middle. If every king of the south in Daniel 11 derived from Egypt, and every king of the north derived from the areas just north and northeast of Israel, is Daniel's prophecy giving us a clue of the geographical location from which the Antichrist will arise? It's a simple question. And I think it's an important question. Is Daniel giving us a clue? If every other king of the south that is described in chapter 11 comes from Egypt, and if every other king of the north described in Daniel 11 comes from areas of the land just north and northeast of Israel, or the Scriptures here, is God's messenger to Daniel giving us a clue as to where this final king will derive from. It would seem so. It would seem so. In fact, other portions of Scripture actually seem to bear this out. You have on your outline there, on the bottom right, a portion of Micah. You're all familiar with Micah 5.2. It's a great uh, uh, prophecy of Jesus Look at verse 2 of Micah 5, uh, 5-2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to Me the One, Jesus, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. We all know verse 2 of Micah 5. It's a great prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. But what we often skip over is what happens right afterwards in verse 5 and 6. And this One, Micah writes, Jesus... Shall be be peace. When the Assyrian, the Antichrist maybe, when the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria. Thus he, Jesus, shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, when he treads within our borders. I put a question mark there the name Antichrist. And I've done so for good reason. Because you see, history demonstrates that Micah 5, 5, and 6 has never been fulfilled. Micah wrote at the time of the Assyrian invasion of Israel around 722 B.C. And guess what happened? The Assyrians came and they wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. What you read in verse 5 and 6, never happened. Israel never fought back. They weren't able to fight back. They were demolished by the Assyrian Empire. And yet here, Micah says, when Jesus comes, and the Assyrian is in our land, treading on our palaces, then Jesus... And His people will fight against this man and will overcome him. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 24 and 25 make similar statements about a coming Assyrian who will be overthrown. So the prophecies of Micah 5 and Isaiah 14 are yet unfulfilled. And they speak of a man, an Assyrian, with a physical origin from land as what we would know today as Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and western Iran. The ancient land of Assyria. He derives from this region of the world and it is said in Micah 5 that Jesus Himself will fight against this one. If He arises from these regions, and the Scriptures seem to bear that out, Micah 5, Isaiah 14, Daniel 11. The Scriptures seem to bear out that the King of the North is in fact from that very region. And if He is from this region, then it is likely, likely that He is to be born into an Islamic family. As verse 37 has told us though, He will not regard the God of His fathers. Which is to say, he will not regard Allah. But instead, this man will worship a god of fortresses. And in the early days of his power, when a king from Egypt challenges him, he shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, ships, enter the countries, overwhelm them, pass through. He'll even enter the glorious land, which is Israel. Many countries shall be overthrown but these shall escape from His hand. He mentions three, Edom, Moab, Ammon. Perhaps they escape by treaty. Perhaps they escape by fleeing. We come to verse 42. He shall stretch out His hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, also the Libyans and the Ethiopians, shall follow at his heels. Here again, God's messenger confirms the territories. Don't don't miss this. The messenger of God confirms to Daniel the territories of which he speaks. He says to Daniel that Egypt won't escape, which makes sense, because the king of the south from Egypt has gone up to fight him. And the king of the north has come down like a whirlwind, and he's ravaged the king of the south. And it says in like fashion, that Egypt won't escape. We're speaking of territories of land here. The king of the south, who challenges the king of the north, shall lose. And the people of Egypt shall not escape. Instead, they shall have their treasury and their riches plundered by the Antichrist. In time, the Libyans, which for Daniel would have meant all of northern Africa, and the Ethiopians, which for Daniel would have meant all of eastern Africa, they will follow at his heels what fascinates me more than anything is that none of this is incomprehensible i mean none of this is incomprehensible we look i don't i don't mean to play uh, newspaper hermeneutics here i don't mean to read scriptures and compare it with our, our modern day and try to line uh, point, you know connect the dots everywhere but it just doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that this is not incomprehensible This is the likelihood that what we're seeing here is starting to transpire in our day. is high. Look at Syria. Look at Iraq. Look at Iran. The ancient land of Assyria, the king of the north. What's happening in those nations? In Syria, under the brutal dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad, Tens of thousands of people are dying. Hundreds are dying daily right now. They're in a state of civil war. Look at Iraq. Iraq has just come through a brutal dictatorship in Saddam Hussein. They've gone through great war, great chaos, terrorism. They're attempting to make democracy work. The world is watching. Look at Iran. Iran is working to create nuclear energy, which they tell us is for peaceful purposes, and we all believe that. Yet their president publicly advocates for the annihilation of Israel. These lands, these territories of the world, which are undeniably the ancient territories of Assyria, are utterly unstable. Is it not reasonable that lands such as these might coalesce behind a world ruler. What of Egypt? What of Libya? What of Ethiopia? We've watched the Arab Spring become a dark and cold winter. A dark and cold winter of extremism. Egypt, Libya. They got rid of their dictators. And the world went, oh good! Hosni Mubarak, what an awful man. Egypt will be much better without him. Qaddafi. oh, what a terrible dictator. Libya will be much better without him. And what has replaced those governments? We're going to see dictators and rulers in those nations that make Gaddafi and Hosni Mubarak pale in comparison to them. Ethiopia, as Daniel knew it, included countries like Sudan and Somalia, unstable in all their ways. If ever, friends, there was a portion of the world that was ripe for conquest, if ever there was a portion of the world that was ripe for domination by one man, it would be this region of the world. And the King of the North, the Antichrist, will one day come into the midst of great chaos, a world ripe for the picking, and he will usher in a new world order. We conclude with verse 44 and 45. But news... God's messenger tells Daniel, news from the east and from the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. In the midst of the king of the north's war against Egypt, in the midst of this coalescing of world power, the Antichrist will be given a message that troubles him. He will become angered by this news and he will leave Egypt at once. The Bible says that he'll plant his tent between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. This, of course, suggests that the news that displeases him originates in Jerusalem. A city neatly located between the Mediterranean to the west and the Dead Sea to the east. What news will he hear that draws his fury to Jerusalem? If we compare Daniel 11 with portions of Revelation, we might get a glimpse of what this news might have been. We might rightly speculate that the Antichrist will come to Jerusalem to deal with some of the great chaos and plagues that are happening there and throughout His kingdom. There are two witnesses of God that will be speaking in Jerusalem in and about that time. The middle portion of the tribulation period. Perhaps some believe them to be a resurrected Moses and Elijah. And these two witnesses of God will be going around Jerusalem and the neighboring towns and villages striking the earth with exodus-like plagues because of the wickedness of mankind. But whatever the news might be, Daniel indicates that the King of the North will come to Jerusalem to destroy and to annihilate many. The midpoint of the tribulation period. And that in due time, He shall come to His end and no one will help Him. Though He will succeed for a time, the Bible reveals that the King of the North will lose... Jesus Himself will come. And if we were to read the the latter part of Revelation 19 or Zechariah 14, for all His military prowess, when the King of the North meets Jesus face to face, the battle is over in the snap of a finger. The God of fortresses, Satan, and His devotee, the King of the North, are no match for the Lord our God. They shall come to their end, and no one shall help them. This is Daniel's vision. A final king of the north. He's been speaking about so many of them. And he paused in Daniel 11 on Antiochus Epiphanes from verse 21 to 35. He paused in a period of time to describe a king of the north whose ruthless character was beyond imagination. But then God told Daniel about one more king. He told them about a final king of the north from verse 35 to the end of the chapter. A man who would make Antiochus Epiphanes pale in comparison. And this final man of sin, this final king of the north, it seems to me he'll be an Assyrian. He'll derive from the very territory of which Daniel spoke. He will attempt to bring together great world order Amidst chaos. He will prosper amidst the plagues and the chaos and the wrath of God upon this earth. But the Lord God says to Daniel that in the end he will come to his end and no one will help him. You might ask, why do I need to know this? I'll be gone. I'll be raptured. And that's true. Those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior, We will not endure this. The Bible says that we will not endure the wrath to come, but that we will be spared, that Jesus will descend and will take us with Him before this time of great tribulation. But in the meantime, friends, why do we study this? Why do we consider the character and the events of this final King of the North? There's only one reason, and it is to warn others. It is to warn them. It is to let the world know that the great delusion is coming. Great lies are coming. That the world is going to look upon a man and give him their worship and their adulation amidst chaos on earth. That the world is going to believe a lie. That the world is going to be deluded. And we are a people who must warn the world of falsehood and tell them of the one truth that resides in this book, the truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that only by faith in Him will we be spared of the wrath to come. As we consider this man, let us not worry about whether he has a desire for woman, women or not. Let us be focused on the fact that he will delude millions and billions And we need to warn everyone about Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a sobering thought to consider the final King of the North. An awful man. And we've caught only a glimpse of him here in Daniel 11. So much of Your Word, Lord, speaks more of this man. Speaks more of his lust for power. His selfishness. His... Wicked character and violence. And God, we can get caught up in uh, his characteristics. We can get caught up in all the events that we might dot our I's and cross our T's. But Lord, that's not the point of this. The point here is to know that coming delusion is just around the corner, it's already happening in our world today. People are throwing off rulers only to find new rulers who are worse than the ones before them. Democratically elected leaders are being elected again and again and again because the people are deluded, believing a lie. Many who are under brutal dictators are sitting idly by and passive. God, this world is in a state of great chaos. And the pot is being stirred even now in the territories of the King of the North, in the territories of the King of the South. It doesn't take a rocket scientist, Lord, for us to know that the time is near and Your Word tells us that. And so what is our response, God? May it be to warn. May it be to preach the Gospel. May it be to declare the whole counsel of God that we might warn the world of what is to come and point them to the one true Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. We commit, Lord, to declaring Him even as we study these great and awful things. We pray that Jesus would rise up in our speech, in our actions. That we would make Him known to all. In the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.